This is the Cop Think Podcast, where we answer the question, why do the police do what they do? I'm the host, Brian Casey, and my guest is Tom Menton. And this is the topic. Are you ready? I'm ready. Air and blood. All right. All right. I, I like, we'll explain that in a little bit. In fact, let me just, let me just do a little explaining real quick, um, because I want to I define some terms in a minute. So when we think of um, air and blood, uh, we, we recognize that you've got to get oxygen, constant flow, constant available oxygenated blood to the brain. And um, when you think in terms of air, uh, we take in air during, through our mouth and nose and transport it through uh, the trachea down into the lungs. And, uh, or we can think of that as the breathing tube. And the, and, and the trachea, as, as you know, and I'm explaining this for the listener, is um, basically a tube that is reinforced with cartilage rings. Um, but they're actually not rings, they're more like C-shaped, I believe, because they're um, to give them rigidity, but they're not a circle all the way around. And um, we know that we can hold our breath, right? And so we can hold our breath and have no immediate negative effect. When it comes to blood to the brain, uh, we, Blood is transported to the brain and I suppose the head through the carotid arteries. And um, they're, um, um, if you block the carotid arteries, you, you, and ways to block that would be to overcome the pressure, like push on the carotid arteries. Interestingly, you could push on one and the other carotid artery would fill up the gap, so to speak, and, and it wouldn't necessarily be harmful. But if you were to put enough pressure on both of them, you could stop blood flow to the brain. And how much pressure is that? Well, it'd be enough to overcome that. Uh, if you think of being at the doctor's office, for example, and they take your blood pressure, they put the cuff on your arm and they pump it up, and you're like, well, that's a lot of pressure. But actually, they're just pressure blowing it up well above uh, the rate, the systolic or the top number, rate, right? And then they ease it down. And as soon as the, you can even feel it sometimes, the blood's starting to get through, that's the systolic or the top number. Let's say it's 120 right. milligrams of mercury, whatever that means. And um, the blood, that's the top number. So all you have to do to stop blood flow is overcome that amount of pressure. And we've very, all done very little. We've, it's not that much. And we've done direct pressure, for example, which works in almost all cases of bleeding. Right. You know, you just push on it. Um, so the, my point is, is that you could push on the carotid arteries, both of them, and it doesn't take that much pressure, and you could stop blood flow to the brain. Unlike breathing, the effect is immediate. Right. You could render someone immediately unconscious. Interestingly, if you released it, they almost always immediately recover right. with no ill effect. And we can talk about that. The reason I bring that whole thing up or take a minute to explain that is the words that are out there right now regarding air and blood, we're hearing a lot about chokes and choke holds. Yep. And a choke, if you look at the definition, has to do with obstructing airflow, either purposefully or accidentally. Right. Um, uh, I remember the importance of understanding strangulation and differentiating that when there were some changes in domestic violence investigations, yep. right? We were, we were careful to differentiate when someone had been strangled, for example. And uh, strangled is a little broader term because that includes putting your hands, presumably, around someone's neck right. and squeezing and with the intention of harming them and that could be, they could harm them in two ways, uh, multiple ways, but one would be to stop blood flow or stop airflow. Right. Um, I don't know if this is a current term right now, but the L LVNR, the lateral vascular yeah, neck restraint. LVNR, yeah. lateral vascular neck restraint. Uh, it's uh, actually a trademark term okay. by the Kansas City Police Department because they that's like the name they came up with for their method of utilizing a neck restraint. Um, back in, I, I believe, 1971 or 1972. So it's, it's actually trademarked. So agencies since that time that wanted to use um, neck restraints, they had to call it something different unless they went to Kansas City's training. Interesting. Well, um, and, and I'll tell you, I worked at two police departments simultaneously, one full-time and one part-time. And at one agency, we did that maneuver. And at mm -hmm. one agency, we didn't. Right. And... Um, I'll let you talk about that whole concept, but I just wanted to throw out there at the beginning the really broad use of the word choke, and, and, it's, and I'm actually surprised that even police officers use the term choke because yeah. they know choke suggests air, yep. 
and that's not what they're thinking about. We have very little or no interest in obstructing people's airflow. Right. But as uh, as a defensive tactic, we may, if approved, want to st- uh, temporarily stop blood flow to the brain. Right. Even though that sounds frightening to a novice. Yep, yep. So why why are you here today? What do you know about these topics? Why would I have invited you? Right. So my background um, includes... I guess, knowledge of these topics in a few different ways. Uh, for one, you know, I've been a police officer for, I guess, 13 years or so now. Um, and the last four or five of them, I've been full-time or almost full-time training police uh, in use of force techniques. Um, in addition to that, um, I've been training in the martial art of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for um, approximately 11 years, maybe coming up on 11 years, something like that. Actually, I think it's more than 11 now. Um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, for those who don't know, um, is a martial art that focuses on grappling. And it also focuses on joint locks um, and, I guess, what uh, you know we've been referring to as... Um, more of the strangulation, you know, but it's, it actually in jujitsu, everybody just calls it a choke also just oh. because that's just the, the common terminology. Um, and I don't even know if most jujitsu practice practitioners know or care of the difference between the two. Um, but the, the common terminology there too, oddly enough is, is choke, even though that's nobody's shoving anything down anyone's mouth. Nobody's purposefully stopping, uh, the airflow. Air um, it's all about stopping the, the blood flow. Um, in addition to that, I've been, um, part of three published research studies um, on on this topic, on um, this, the strangulation or choke or whatever you want to call it, um, of you know, blood flow stoppage to the brain. Um, all three of those studies have been published in the last couple of years. And, you know, I haven't really been on the medical side of it. Um, I've been more on the you know, police advisory <laughs> side of it, um, or assisting, you know, kind of the, the doctors that are the real experts on that. Um, I'm one of, one of four or five authors, depending on which study we're talking about. Um, the other authors are all, all doctors. Um, one of whom is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt like me, but he's also an ER doctor at, uh, Regions Hospital. He's the head of their toxicology department, Dr. Sam Stelpflug. Um, we also have, a one of the lead researchers is a, um, a doctor at United. He's got a history of like neurosurgery, and I think he works with stroke victims now or stroke patients now. Um, and then we've also got another Regions ER doctor who goes to a different jiu-jitsu gym. So all three of those guys are all jiu-jitsu practitioners. They're all doctors. So they all have a passion for, for the topic. Um, and just there's not a lot of existing research on the topic. So they really wanted to especially Dr. Sam Stelpflu, we just call him Dr. Sam. He really, really had a passion for this and was the driving force behind it. Um, just wanted to get actual research and data out there because there's just not really nothing out there for published data that people can go to and find out, you know, just to answer the, the simple question of how bad is this for the human body to be choked unconscious or to be strangled unconscious. Um, it's tough to find an answer to that question with actual like peer-reviewed published data because nobody's done very much. Um, our, the very first uh, paper that we published was really just a, a compilation, a, a literature review of all the existing data that's out there. And it's, it's not a lot. It's, it was everything we could find. We actually, in order to get all of it, um, we, we had to uh, contact the, the Kotokan in... Uh, in Japan to get, which is like this old judo institute, um, because they did studies back in, I think the fifties and sixties of, you know, what happens if we choke someone out and try to measure everything we can while they do it. Um, it was just a really interesting thing because we had to like call over there and get somebody in their like library to photocopy these old manuals that they had. Um, and we got those kind of included in our literature review, which was really cool just because it's kind of historical, you know? Um, but that's, that was the driving force behind doing these, um, these studies, um, the subsequent studies, one was basically a survey that we put out to the martial arts communities and police communities, um, at large, um, just looking for, uh, people that have had experience 
when training martial arts, when training mixed martial arts, when training jiu-jitsu, when training judo, when training army combatives, when training police combatives, um, to see who's experienced being choked unconscious, which, what ill effects, if any, have you had? We actually had over 5,000 responses to that survey when we put it out, um, over, I think, over 4,400 of which had experienced being choked unconscious. Um, or I'm sorry, scratch that, experienced being choked in um, in the martial art of jiu-jitsu, we oftentimes grapple each other with full resistance, full live resistance. We try to get the other person to tap out. Um, and one of the ways we can do that is to catch them in like a compromised position. Like we get, um, we get like a, an arm lock, you know, um, 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 an arm bar position, we call it, where it threatens to hyperextend the elbow. And we don't actually do that to each other. We just get to that position and start to slowly apply the pressure. And if your partner can't escape that, they tap you. And, you know, whoever got the umbar, you know, I guess you could call it win- wins, but it's just training. Sure. And slap hands and go again, unless it's a tournament, then I guess it means a little more. Um, but a, a choke or a, a strangle, we just call it chokes, um, is another way that you can get, get a tap, you know. So a lot of the respondents to the survey had um, tapped to being caught in that choke position. And that's not because they went all the way unconscious. It's because uh, they got to that spot and they knew if they didn't tap, they were going to go unconscious. So some of the survey questions kind of centered in on that. Like, did you, you know, what, what did you experience before you tapped? Was the, you know, the world kind of, was your vision narrowing? That's a common one before you go unconscious. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think over 1,200 of them had gone unconscious. Um, And many of them numerous times. And out of all of those times that people have been um, choked, some all the way out, you know, there really weren't any with ill effects that lasted. Um, there were, I think, two people that noted long-term negative effects out of the 4,000-plus that experienced it, so very low percentage. And one of those, if my memory's serving, it's been a little while since I uh, looked at it, one of those was like someone who needed a a brief outpatient procedure to correct something that um, was damaged in his neck. And the other one was um, someone who claimed that they were experiencing like some vision side effects uh, long-term. And and that was really it for, for bad long-term side effects. Wow. Okay. So a couple thoughts on that. One is um, I'm, I'm hoping you can talk in detail the technique. So we're just going to be talking about it. Mm-hmm. You're going to be warning everybody not to practice it at home right, with their kids. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but um, I, in the training, so I had an instructor like you train me or uh, apply that to me. And once they, because they were so skilled, mm-hmm. once they put me in that position, and they, were, they didn't apply any pressure, but I just knew they had me. I mean, it was so impressive mm-hmm. um, how effective uh, just the correct placement was mm-hmm. and how... I knew I was in trouble right. immediately. Yep. And in fact, I remember too in the academy how you train. If you feel like someone's putting you in that, either because they're skilled or in um, unskilled, mm-hmm. you know, there's ways that we immediately try to escape that right. because we know that. What, the reason I let's give up. Don't worry about the, using the word choke. I just wanted to make that point that it's yep. important. I get it. Um, it's unfortunate sometimes because it miscommunicates, and so when they're talking about the public may be saying, we don't want to uh, um, not allow a chokehold. What they're asking for might be different than right. what our experience yeah. or interpretation. But let's not worry about that, too. One thing I do think about, the reason that I, I get a little hung up on some of these words, and even how I'm interested in how breathing works, and I've created some training around mm-hmm. that, because there's an amazing amount of misunderstanding about it, even though we feel we should understand that, Um one is that when I hear the word choke, I really relate to obstructed airway right. because obviously I was in the Amos business for years. Yep. And that was a huge issue, either partial or um, complete obstructions. The, um, you said there were no negative, or, or I don't know if it's fair to say no negative effects, but I'm actually not surprised there were aren't ne- a lot of negative effects because mm-hmm. fainting is maybe one of the things that the body does when it says, I'm not getting enough oxygenated blood to the brain. Um, I should make myself flat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. Yep. I, I'll do that. And um, so the body knows what it's doing. 
One thing, though, I do know about the carotid arteries, there was a thing that we would do because the vagus nerve is a, is a 10th cranial nerve and it's a, one of the nerves that goes down to the, the heart to kind of essentially put the brakes on the speed of the heart. Right. And uh, if you stimulate the vagus nerve, you can slow down the heart and people can faint. Hmm. And that's, so that's something you can do. However, it's not without hazards because if there's plaque in there, right. yep. you could theoretically, uh, so we used to listen for what's called bruise, um, listen to the carotid artery, and then uh, you could, so if you did that massage, there was a risk, especially during certain age groups, that you could cause um, a stroke, I guess. Sure. Um, but I want to make clear, I think the technique you're describing is not that same technique. I would highly doubt it. Yeah. I don't know which technique I mean, you guys I mean, would. I, the crowded science massage. Yeah, I, I haven't seen a, yeah. you know, that. That's a much more aggressive massage. Like rubbing mode. both carotid arteries aggressively? Right. Interesting. Yeah. Or yeah. maybe one. Um, where you're talking about this is just an increased pressure. Right. And I've, I've heard of, you know, and the, the doctors have talked about it, um, you know, the, the plaque break-off being a possibility. Um, in fact, like I said, one of the doctors that's on the research is a, a stroke doctor right now. Um, so that's something he talks about a lot, um, Dr. Jesse Corey. And I think that's more of a concern with, you know, the elderly population or people with other high-risk factors um, typically not the type of person that's in the gym every day training mixed martial arts and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Although there are, there are, you know, I've sure. trained with people in their seventies, sure. you know, people that would absolutely destroy people who don't train in their prime of their life, you know? Um, but that's not your typical, your typical group in there. Um, and I've heard, you know, anecdotal stories of, um, people suffering strokes that they, they are convinced were, were due to, you know, uh, choke that occurred in the gym environment um but extraordinarily rare when you consider how many gyms there are and how many students there are practicing these things on a daily basis you know all across the world not just even the country well jujitsu and even good police work mm -hmm. is not uh, scrapping you know mm -hmm. i mean this is thoughtful stuff that we Correct. do yep. and you make decisions even in law enforcement about what kind of force to use on what people because mm -hmm. based on a variety of considerations yep. you know pregnant people children elderly that kind of stuff yep. so um yeah so even just bringing up that hazard i maybe i shouldn't have because i don't want to overemphasize you're not grabbing someone by the throat no 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 you know you're 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 applying a very specific technique yeah. just explain the tech do you mind explaining no, not the at technique all. a little bit we can demonstrate it on going <laughs> down here yeah <laughs> Um, and, and to be clear, you know, the, the agency, um, that I work for, we've never even used the neck restraint in, in the line of, you know, police work. Yeah. Um, and nor have I actually, so I also have a, a training business where we teach police, um, use of force techniques yeah. and we don't teach any neck restraint techniques there either. So really the only time I'm using them or teaching them or doing them is when I'm at a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or mixed martial arts gym, right? And I'm glad you brought that up because you're not speaking on behalf of our agency. Correct. Even though we both work at the same police department. Yep. Um, and also, um, but, but let me ask you, are you, the, the reason that some agencies or that you don't include it in your training is not because it's not effective. It's because True. it's there's maybe other hazards like there is in, uh, that we make decisions based on perception and mm -hmm. is, is that true? That's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, and a, a few things go into it. One is, um, absolutely that, uh, well, a big one is the need. I think, um, we've been very lucky at our agency to, especially in the last few years to be allowed to train our officers, um, a, a pretty good amount when you compare it to other agencies. I think it should generally across the board for police, we should receive way more training than we currently do. Um, but especially when you look at our academy process, we're, we're able to train our recruits in more than a hundred hours of hands-on techniques. Um, and we include a lot of, a lot of team tactics in that, a lot of, you know, two officer or three officer takedowns when somebody's resisting a lot of two to three officer control techniques when we've got someone down on the ground. Um, and, by allowing us to train our officers so well in the academy process, they become very competent in controlling somebody. So it, the need really hasn't 
we haven't had like a scenario unfold on the street where the officers just couldn't control this person, at least not in the last few years, um, because the techniques they were using worked. So it, it nobody's screaming like, oh, we need, we we should have been able, been allowed to use a VNR neck restraint yeah. um, on this person because that, that would have been the only way to control them. That just really hasn't happened. Um, and I think a lot of other agencies that have allowed neck restraints to be in their curriculum, um, they've made it their go-to, you know, they don't, they don't have a long academy where they're allowed to train all this other stuff. They don't know the techniques to train that are really effective. Um, but they have the neck restraint. So as soon as someone starts resisting, they use it. Um, and the same could be said for, um, taser or other intermediate, um, weapons, baton, although you don't see that used very often at all, pepper spray, that type of thing. Um, a lot of agencies don't give their officers really any hands-on training at all. Um, and they'll default to using those tools, which can be fairly ineffective against somebody who's not willing to stop because they're feeling pain, or maybe they don't even feel the pain because they're on whatever narcotic sure. or alcohol. Um, well, that's a really important point. You made mm-hmm. a couple, one, the only adjustment I would made is not luck. You know, that mm-hmm. it's planning. Yep. It's good. It's forethought. True. It's a, an organization that's made this a priority. Yep. Um, and also, I, I don't know if you do, but somebody reviews all use of force correct and so you know what you're talking about yeah yeah so i i try to review every single use of force incident um i worked patrol due to uh some of this covid stuff um just the need for more officers on the street um, i worked patrol for the last four months so i'm very behind right now um but generally i try to review as many use of force incidents as i can um, i read every use of force report that occurs and there's also you know our a committee that reviews use of force incidents on a weekly basis that that i'm not on so that's your assignment within the training unit correct my oh. my assignment is well, one of use, your assignments yeah my primary though is is use of force stuff oh, really yep okay um yeah so you we review that it makes sense so mm-hmm. did i cut you off from something what um i can't remember i can't remember either um, okay. What else do we, what else you want to, so we'll talk about the technique a little bit, just to sure. just, and, and I guess before you were going to do that, you made a clarification that th- this is mostly within your jujitsu. Yep. So I've never used a neck restraint on a suspect as a police officer. We don't allow it at our agency. Yeah. Um, we don't teach it through our training company. Um, there are many other companies that do, um, although it's, it's going to be banned or it is banned with the new legislature in Minnesota. So, um, kind of a moot point as far as that goes now, but um, in in jujitsu, it's you know a very common technique to the point where five year olds are doing it during their first class. Um, if that gives you an idea of how in the jujitsu community, MMA mixed martial arts community, how it's viewed as not very risky, um, and there's a, I mean there are at least a thousand ways to choke someone. Um, but the most common you'll see. In police work, the most common, I shouldn't say the most common, but a, a very common thing you'll see on like uh, the UFC professional fighting um, is the rear naked choke, the RNC. And that's just wrapping your arm around someone's neck. Um, the goal is not to put pressure on the front of the throat, right? That's what a lot of people who are novices, that's what they might think, that I'm just going to wrap someone's neck and squeeze. That's not the case. What you, the, the goal to get an effective um, block of both carotid arteries, which are on the sides of the neck. So you want your bicep to wrap against the carotid artery on one side of the neck and your forearm to wrap around the carotid artery on the other side of the neck. And your elbow actually cradles and protects the throat. So you don't want pressure on the front of the the throat. Um, And that's what, if you were able to achieve that, that's what's considered in jujitsu or fighting a a, a clean choke. Um, And that, that can render somebody unconscious in just a matter of seconds. Um, one of the published studies we did actually studies every single instance in the UFC where somebody went unconscious due to a choke. Um, and it was 80 plus instances. Um, and we've got it broken down by type of choke used because there's, like I said, there's a lot of different ones out there. Um, it's a little limited in the UFC because they're not wearing a shirt. They're not wearing the martial arts uniform, but in Classic jujitsu, we wear, you know, if if you don't do martial arts, what you would think of as that traditional 
you know, bathrobe looking kimono thing, right? We, we call it a gi. Um, we don't wear it just to fit in with martial artists. We wear it because we use it like you'd grab onto somebody's real clothing. And there are many ways to render someone um, unconscious using, using those chokes by grabbing onto uh, the collar of their um, of their gi, or even grabbing onto your own sleeve and using that to apply leverage um, around the neck. But each time, the goal is to apply pressure to the carotid arteries. The goal is not to apply pressure to the front of the throat. Well, let me just say that if you were to look down on the top of the head, and the trachea or the Adam's apple was 12 o'clock. Mm-hmm. The carotid arteries, the left and right, would be more like 1 and 2 o'clock, mm-hmm. and the left side would be more like 10, 11 o'clock. Correct. Yeah, so that it, it would be a mistake. It'd be, a, uh, it'd be futile and wouldn't be even effective, you know. Right. And or not futile, but it wouldn't, wouldn't be effective. It would not be very effective. And no. it could, could cause real Could, could cause, cause damage. damage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And... In those realistic, as realistic as possible, and they're not real street fights, but it's probably as close as you're going to get with really good camera footage and um, the ability to study it in like a professional mixed martial arts bout like a UFC fight. So that our goal was to kind of study when somebody is attempting to apply a choke in as close to a real fight as possible, and how long does it take if that person doesn't tap for them to go unconscious and the average time, do you have a guess? Uh, when somebody's fighting back, so they're trying to defend it, right? Yeah. They're not just sitting there and letting you do it. They're fighting back, but all of these people end up going unconscious. Yeah. What do you think the average time was for them to go out? Uh, four seconds, nine, okay. nine seconds. I, th- I think the fastest was three. Uh-huh. Um, and the longest, I can't remember off the top of my head in the twenties, but this is, you know, a scenario where somebody's fighting against it. So maybe the arms around their neck and they're able to use their hands to peel it away. They, you know, the blood pumps a little more oxygen to the brain and then they lose grip and it goes back, you know, so that's how it can last a lot longer. Um, so it's not as, not as clean as you might think because it's not, you know, a gym where maybe you're just allowing someone to do it. Um, it's, and it was interesting because there wasn't really a particular technique that, um, it's not like the the rear naked choke I described earlier. That wasn't like the standout, this is the way that people go unconscious the quickest. They were all kind of even. Um, and there's ways to apply um, chokes using uh, your legs. Like when the, t- the typical one is the triangle choke, and that's when the person applying it is actually laying on their back. And the person getting choked is... Um, between their legs, essentially. We call it the guard. Yeah. When the person on bottom has their legs wrapped around the top person, the person on bottom is able to use their legs to help control that person. They What they don't want is for that person to get around their legs because when the top person gets around the legs, they're in either side control by holding you down from the side or they're on top of you in top mount position. Real bad for bottom person. But if the bottom person can th- get their legs between, that's the, the guard. Your legs are your guard. And there's a way to trap just the arm one arm and the person's head between your legs and essentially use your knees to apply pressure one knee squeezes outside the shoulder and one knee squeezes against the side of the neck so the shoulder of the person on top is getting pushed into their own neck and that's hitting the carotid on one side and on the other side is the knee of the person on bottom who's applying that choke so that's another way to to choke somebody out essentially in in jujitsu mixed martial arts and that was a similar amount of time is my point to uh to render that person unconscious as any other choke well maybe we can let me ask you about um so one thing that we need to do is i remember um so obviously jujitsu not obviously but jujitsu is would be is very useful for police officers correct and we've been talking a lot about you know the chokes in jujitsu but like i said we don't even yeah. utilize them. So that's not even where the primary benefit is. Um, the The entire system that we use at our agency, the entire system that we use um, when we teach police use of force through our company, Storm, um, is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as like the base, you know, the, the base of how we do the techniques. And it's not nothing to do with the chokes. It's everything to do with the control. Because establishing control is the most important thing before anything else in a fight. 
Um, and whether, no matter what your goal is, even if your goal is to get away from this person, if you don't have the training and the techniques to gain some type of control before then choosing to disengage or get away from that person, you're not going to be very successful. Um, and factor all the outside things that can happen in, you know, a real fight, especially in police work. Um, it's, it's really not that simple as like a one-on-one, you know, okay, go scenario. There's a lot more to it. Oftentimes multiple police officers, one suspect and traditionally officers have been trained single officer techniques or kind of unrealistic techniques. I could go on for a long time about that. Um, but jujitsu is hands down the most realistic martial art out there. And this is demonstrated time and time again in, in mixed martial arts. I mean, any, any fighting style is acceptable there. It's called mixed martial arts because pretty much everybody does multiple different styles and techniques. However, no one is successful without Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It's the base, the core of position and you need good striking to go along with it. Um, and that's important in martial arts or it's important in mixed martial arts in uh, the UFC, but it's not very important in police work. Um, because oftentimes people were fighting, they don't feel pain. They don't respond to it. Um, yeah, I call it, they don't have an off switch. Like they really don't. And if they don't want to stop, then punching them or kicking them isn't really going to make them stop Right. using control techniques, which take advantage of leverage and timing. Um, even allowing smaller people to overcome a larger, more aggressive, uh, stronger suspect. Um, those are, that's the core of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. That's exactly what it is. It's using timing and leverage to your advantage with proper technique. Let me throw something out. So, um, I think what you're saying and you'll agree that an ideal situation is that a police officer would be skilled in jujitsu and many police officers that I know seek that out on their own. Right. Um, because they recognize that and they enjoy it. Number two would be to go to some training that makes that fundamental. Right. You know, that's the core of it, like storm training. And I didn't bring you on to talk about storm training, but I, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about it in a, in a bit. Sure. To just so you do that. So, you, so have some um, use of force or combative training that y- uses that as their kind of core mm-hmm. philosophy. And number three would have an agency who um, thinks this stuff through, uh, makes priorities of what kind of skills, whether it's um, you know a, a multiple officer approach to handcuffing when I when possible and all that stuff which you mentioned, with that kind of, I mean, so there's nothing that you've introduced, or that our training unit has introduced that conflicts with the philosophy of jujitsu, does it? Uh, not in the last few years, no. Yeah. Um, when we initially began teaching our program. This would be circa 2015. Um, that was the 20. 20- our agency. Our agency. Okay. Yeah. Um, in 2015, we taught the new curriculum to um, the academy that started that year, and at the end of 2015, we began teaching uh, the first like techniques from the curriculum um, to the general patrol officers at an in-service setting. Um, but prior to that. It was kind of a complete 180 from the system that we had been using. Um, we had been using what many agencies used and some still use across the country, which is called um, like PPCT, pressure point control tactics. Um, some agencies use like Krav Maga, that type of thing. These are uh, systems that are based in like pain compliance techniques, strikes, um, pressure points, um, Krav Maga is like uh, generally somebody resists, you attack full force with as many punches and kicks and knees as you can. PPCT is generally when somebody resists, you disengage and throw strikes or utilize tools on your belt. And we don't really discount any of that with our curriculum, you know, the, the direction we've gone, but the, the general philosophy of it is that you need to be highly trained in the close contact grabbing onto someone stuff. And that's where the majority of time needs to be spent because that's the most realistic thing. Um, Any time that you want to talk about uh, strikes and throwing effective strikes, the reason it's really unrealistic is because in a real fight, 
it's very difficult to, to disengage. Most real fights end up in a clinch, meaning two people grabbing onto each other, whether it's voluntary on both parts or not, or winds up on the ground. You know, um, it's very difficult without a high amount of training, or at least to know the, the correct thing to do to disengage from that spot. And oftentimes what we see is if someone, if their goal is to disengage, then the suspect comes at them and the officer attempts to back away because they want to disengage. Well, now you have an officer moving backwards and a suspect moving forwards. So of course the suspect's going to be faster because who goes faster? Someone moving backwards, someone running forward. Uh, and the entire time, officers are generally trained to get to tools on their belt or to throw strikes. Um, very hard to throw an effective strike when you're moving backwards. Um, no matter what system you train, it's, you're not in a good position or balance or anything. Um, and trying to get tools out of your belt while you're getting punched in the face generally is not advisable, but that's what we see all the time on police use of force videos because that's the scenario. They're moving backwards, suspect's moving forward, they're reaching down, their hands aren't protecting their face, suspect's throwing punches, suspect either knocks them out or does a significant amount of damage, and it ends up forcing the officer to escalate to extremely high levels of force, you know, and many times um, forcing the officer to have to draw and fire because they don't, they're getting killed. They don't have another option. They don't have the training. Um, many times there's second officers on scene when this occurs, and they, it's people that don't train team techniques. They don't, that second officer doesn't know what to do. Many times you see them just pulling their taser out, shooting their taser at the suspect, and generally tasers have about a 50% success rate. So 50% of the time doesn't work or it works. And then suspect gets back up because officers have disengaged. They didn't can't control the person. And now you're back to square one and you escalate to a very high amount of force or officers take a lot of damage before more officers get there and figure out how to gain control of this person with a, with a whole bunch of people. And time and time, if you just go on YouTube and search for police fights, you will see that scenario play out 90 plus percent of the time. Wow, the um, um, I, I I read something recently about even uh, close encounters with firearms. Um, how t stop me if you think I'm wrong here. Sure. Where the, the, maybe the best response is to um, lean forward and, and and with your hands and grab things versus what we might want to do of. Uh, try to create some distance, maybe put our, our um, weapon side away and try to draw. Okay. So you're talking, yes. So you're talking, you're super close to somebody yeah. and they produce a firearm unexpectedly, right? right? So, and you're talking the proper response. And I would completely agree with you that generally speaking, of course, there's always going to be exceptions. So you're thinking gun, you're thinking gun. Correct. And that's, and that's not for obvious reasons, but what you really want to do is survival. Correct. Yep. And, and they, in this illustration, they showed a bat being a broken bat flying into the stands at a uh, at a uh, baseball game. Okay, what does everybody do? They they move their head mm -hmm. and they put their hands up. You know, these are untrained people sure. trying not to get hit yep. with a, a fast moving piece of wood. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's actually an instinct that sometimes we may not we may train out of cops maybe. Yep, because. Uh, in this study, it showed that, or in this commentary, you know, I wish I remember the number, but like eight, greater than 80% of officers who suffer gunshot wounds suffer to the face or neck mm. because often suspects will shoot where they're looking, mm -hmm. you know, and um, a, a good defense from that. I don't want to go too much into this because I might be speaking out of my league here. Sure. But um, what part of that do you agree with, I guess? I would absolutely agree that generally speaking, when you're in extreme close quarters, meaning within arm's reach of somebody and suspect produces a, a firearm, generally your best response would be to attempt to use hands to get control of that firearm. Mm -hmm. And that's not to discount, you know, other strategies you can use along with it, uh, trickery, whatever. Sometimes we talk about um, like a drug drug deal gone bad for an undercover officer and drug dealers trying to rob him now or something along those lines. Um and now they're like sitting in a car next to a drug dealer pointing a gun at them from yeah. six inches away. Yeah. Um, and that's going to, you know, maybe they're, it would be in their best, um, best case would be just give them, give them the money and let them go. Yeah. Or maybe they think this person's going to shoot me anyway. I'm going to have to yeah. do something while well, their backup gun is like down at their ankle, you know, think action versus reaction. Sure. What, 
you are way behind the loop when you're sitting there with your hands up, suspects already pointing a gun at you. When you start to go for your gun, you know, a lot of cops probably think they're, their draws super quick and they've played the scenario in their head and they're, they're just gonna, gonna get after it and get it because they have to, well, it's not going to work that way because suspect's going to have multiple rounds in you by the time you even get your gun pointed in, in the right direction. Whereas, you know, maybe trickery comes into play being like distract them in some way or look behind them and get them to shift their gaze and then go for it. That type of thing's going to help, but all that out of it, action beats reaction. Use that in the officer's favor. If we train specific ways to get your body out of the way, your hands on the gun and it pointed away from you within that action reaction loop. So before the suspect even is able to pull the trigger because you've already acted and they're reacting to you. And now we demonstrate this, we we work through it on the mats and in cars just you know doing the training for it. But you actually have more leverage as the person who's not initially holding the gun. Think of like um, a Glock. Think yeah. of how long the barrel is on that sure. versus how long the handle is. There's more leverage on that barrel. So more often than not, whoever starts holding the gun is not who ends up holding the gun because once you get both hands on that barrel, you can pry it out of someone's hand pretty right. easy and and practice. You know, it's kind of an eye opening eye opening thing to to train some of that stuff. Um, I'm reminded of a call I had once when it was uh, somewhere on University Avenue. It was a, an armed security officer. Um, however, for whatever reason, he didn't have his gun on him for his shift. So I don't know if they're like only authorized to be armed for some events while well, he was in the back alley of, um, like an event that was going on, uh, I think a wedding or something like that. And there were, there was a string of robberies, um, going on like that month. And this was one of them. Well, anyway, um, suspects roll up, um, jump out, point a gun at him. Um, the off-duty security guy is dead convinced that's at one point that this suspect's about to shoot him. There's two suspects. One has a gun pointed at him, I believe to his back, maybe to his front. I can't quite remember. It doesn't matter. Um, the point is, I think the second suspect said something like, just shoot him. So the security officer was dead convinced he was about to get shot. So he went for the gun. He didn't have his own on him. Sure. Um, and the exact scenario that I mentioned is exactly what played out. He was able to um, beat the action reaction. The gun went off. The suspect tried to shoot him, yeah. did not hit him. Yeah. Um, his hand got a little, um, a uh, little injury from the slide racking and, um, he was able to get the gun to jam and then just let go of it and fled on foot. And they were trying to shoot him while he was running away. It didn't work out. Um, and I was talking to him, you know, taking the report and I asked him what he thought he would have done had he been armed. And he said, Oh, I would have gone for my gun. Sure. And I, and knowing what I know about use of force stuff, I asked him what he thought about what would have happened. And he, he thought about it for a second. Like, seriously, he's like, well, he would have shot me. It's like, it would have taken me way longer to get my gun out. He would have, he definitely would have shot me. Wow. What an interesting turn of events. That's a good, that's a good example. I think I can easily imagine if you get a hand on, on the slide of a, of a pistol, mm -hmm. how much twisting leverage Absolutely. you can have. You, if you go with the finger, you could maybe get it out. If you went against it, you could break that finger. Absolutely, yep. You can throw it out of battery, yep. either intentionally or, or purposely. Yep. You could you could get your fingers on the release the magazine, mm -hmm. so you only got one round left in the chamber. And I mean, there's a but you could a lot of really good options. Yeah. I also what I also kind of like about it. Again, I'm talking a bit out of my realm. Mm -hmm. I mean, of maybe teaching expertise, but. It's more gross motor movement, and right. it, and like I gave that uh, re referencing this other uh, guy that was talking about it, it's more natural in some yep. ways. Yep, it's a natural thing to grab dangerous things that are up close. If you, I don't know if that's a, to grab at bad or grab or use your hands I to guess def I should defend say. yourself. To defend yeah. yourself. Yep. Sure. Move your head. Defend. You know. Mm -hmm. Move your body. That kind of stuff. Yep. That's really exciting. Let me ask you. We don't have to keep going into this uh, choke stuff mm -hmm. um, because actually you're saying that it's it's. I thought it was a bigger issue, but when you're saying at some agencies like ours, we have these other things we do. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a mute point. But let me just ask you how how would an officer do, let me just give give your jujitsu or your uh, how do, how does an officer defend himself from because I remember in the academy. Mm -hmm. 
they'd say, well, if you can tell someone is going for joint manipulation, you think that they, they have these skills, mm-hmm. you have to respond quickly to that mm-hmm. because you know, you're, you're fighting with somewhat a different level of fighter. You yeah. know? Um, someone is actually trying to take control of your body mm-hmm. other than just like resist arrest or just normal scrapping. Yep. So how do, how do you defend your? What are some thoughts about defending yourself from either the choke or maybe some other techniques that mm-hmm. someone, a skilled person might be using an officer? Well, really, the answer is train. You know, you need to train. You need to to join a gym that trains in this stuff in order to to train the defense to it or be lucky enough to uh, learn it in the academy. But even if you learn in an academy, you need these are all perishable skills. You're going to forget this stuff if you don't. If you go to an academy and you don't do it for 20 years and then it happens to you on the street, you're going to wish you would been that, practicing it that, in the meantime you actually don't need to say anymore you said it all that was <laughs> that was smart it was a dumb question uh well get trained in it yeah that's true <laughs> i mean right. I, I could describe the technical defenses no, no, but no why bother exactly no that was good good answer that was a smart answer <laughs> um let's see here let me just do a quick commercial here and usually i think about usually i give you a thing to think about while i'm doing the commercial Maybe you can tell some successful and unsuccessful encounters you've had as a police officer. With, if whatever, just some of the things that you did well, the lessons you learned, maybe. Hmm, sure. Direct experience is what I'm asking for. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, you might be interested in my book. It's called Good Cop, Good Cop, a Get Healthy, Stay Healthy Guide for Law Enforcement. Covers. Uh, I had a whole chapter on jujitsu, but I cut it out because I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> no, uh, it covers a lot of different topics. Mostly, it's a book about health and well-being with a big focus on uh, mental and emotional well-being. Uh, the book is is in print and also available on audiobook, and uh, you can purchase it through Amazon. Uh, you can also find out more information about uh, the book, the podcast, other things that I do, including a Blue Watch training. Um, at goodcopgoodcop.com. All right. Um, I think we covered the study. Was there anything more you wanted to say about the research or study? Uh, I don't think so. I think you and I got in this conversation during the, what I guess is being called the civil unrest. During the civil unrest, we did. It's a nice term. Um, uh, And uh, you and I were just visiting during a rest period, Mm -hmm. and uh, we kind of got in an intense talk about this whole issue of breathing and choking and I think um, and I think one thing you want to talk about and I wouldn't mind talking about it too is the the misnomer if you can talk you can breathe yeah so let me just tell you that um, yeah I forgot I forgot that um, since that time I resurrected an old talk I had done after Eric Gardner hmm. uh, died while in police custody mm-hmm. I think that's the correct fair way to stay um, and and I think that was 2015. So I prepared a talk I called One Breath, mm-hmm. where I actually recognize that when police officers say, if you can talk, you can breathe. Mm-hmm. And as a para- I had been a paramedic 20 years, I'd, I'd kind of cringe because I'm thinking, ah, well, all it takes is to move air past your vocal cords, which are in your, um, your, your throat, which is a relatively short distance to generate voice. Mm-hmm. And to actually breathe, which is a combination of both ventilation and respiration. Ventilation is the air movement, and respiration is the um, movement of gases, uh, oxygen and carbon dioxide. And you got to get that way down into your alveoli, which are um, little air sacs um, where that they lay up next to a mesh of blood vessels, which are the capillaries. So whatever, it's an exchange of gases. So there's a big difference between talking and breathing, and mm-hmm. it's not exactly correct you to us uh, to assume that if you're speaking you're breathing adequately right the reason i don't want to go more into it now is i created a whole uh training on that that i can maybe do a podcast on nice and people it's called uh, one breath the anatomy and physiology of uh, breathing for law enforcement personnel and that's uh, you can view that right now at um on i think is it uh, where's on the website, but I think it's under training. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you click on that. So anyway, and then I just wrote an article on that for uh, Lexapol. 
Oh, very nice. Yeah. So cool. anyway, so that was another topic. Okay. And um, I just gave, a, I think, a relatively good summary on that. Excellent. Um, uh, go ahead. What, is there, did you have any thoughts about what I asked you? Or you can decline. To... Oh, from uh, before the break? The, yeah. Well, some, something. Your assignment. Done well or done poorly. Um, maybe I'll think of a very specific example, but um, I'll, 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 sh- I'll shoot from the hip here. Um, something I've generally done very poorly. Um, I don't know if that's quite fair to say, but I will say this. Every single, despite immersing myself in fighting, essentially, sure. um, bettering myself at grappling, at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, at martial arts, um, there has never been an incident where, you know, somebody resisted arrest or force had to be used or whatever, any fight I've ever been in while working, um, where I thought back and thought that was perfect. You know, I did everything right. Um, quite the opposite. I can't think of a single time where that happened because I'm always thinking, man, I should have done this or I should have done that, or this was poor, or man, it would have been a good opportunity for this or whatever the case may be. Um, and you know, I've never forgotten that from the time I didn't train to later. And that's not to say that I'm screwing everything up. It's just, I don't think, I, th- I think it'd be very, I think officers would be lying to themselves if they got done with every use of force encounter and they looked back at it and thought they did everything perfect. Um, and the reason I think this is, is because we're under a enormous amount of stress when somebody's resisting you on the street. You have so many things going through your mind. You know, it's, your life is on the line. You don't know, depending on the situation, if this person is about to produce a weapon, you don't know, um, exactly why they're fighting potentially. Um, you, there's always a weapon involved in terms of one on your own hip that person could go. There's so many things to worry about. Um, on top of that, you know, the perception of people watching what people think you're worried about winding up on YouTube, even if you do everything hundred percent correctly. Um, you know, a lot of things go through your mind. It's a very stressful thing to, to do. Um, on top of that, you're trying to to use the best techniques to do things right, to win the fight, um, while staying within the law, within policy. And no matter what, you're going to experience a massive adrenaline dump. And it's going to be extremely difficult to think properly. It's going to be extremely difficult to, to use fine motor skill. That's why... I'd, Pretty much everything we teach is is gross motor, meaning you know it doesn't require you to use your fingers, you know, very precisely. You know, we're talking grab onto the person here, you know, bear hug the legs, you know, simple things um, that need to work. Can't be too simple where it doesn't work, but it can't be so difficult or advanced that um, you know it's it's going to fail. You won't remember how to do it because there are so many steps to it. So I think a lot of my critiques on myself are, are due to those, those things. And mostly it's, it's the thinking portion, you know, like you you train a technique a certain way, but maybe it's been a while since you practiced it. So now you're in a real fight and you forget to do something exactly correct. Um, you know, and then I went to, uh, training full time. And in that time I continued practicing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu or my black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Um, and hadn't worked the street in quite a while. And then during the, um, coronavirus stuff, silver unrest stuff, I wind back up on the street for quite a while. Um, end up in several scenarios where people resist, you know, one was like someone who was going to jump off a bridge. And then when officers grab onto him, he fights, um, cause he's trying to get to the bridge to jump over. You know, another one was a domestic incident where person resisted, um, Two officers were there, me and me and one other officer, and a large guy resists when we put hands on him, put him in handcuffs um, for a felony level arrest, and that's like a classic scenario we practice so many times with two officers, and generally, overall, it went awesome. You know, we both officers did exactly what they were supposed to do, um, generally speaking, meaning the techniques that we teach are designed to like to mess up. Like if you do like 50% of it, right, it'll, it should work. <laughs> and, you know, maybe I did a little better than 50%, but I didn't do a hundred percent. You know, like we, we got our, we got the takedown the way that we train. And then we just kind of, I don't know, forgot <laughs> what we normally do and just kind of went with 
trying to turn them over a different way. And it took me a second to remember, Oh, you know what? We'd have a technique for this. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, it's just something that, that comes to mind every single, every single incident. You got to remember that it doesn't happen the way that you envision it. You know, there's stress plays such a role. And if you're not a training regularly and be practicing realistic techniques on most importantly, resisting opponents, then the likelihood of whatever you're planning on doing is is probably not going to be very successful. Yeah, that was that was one. It was a couple. It was humble of you, um, and it was also I liked how you reminded everybody of the. And you did, you only named about a, f- a fourth of the obvious ones. All the considerations that are in mind. True. It's fascinating mm-hmm. actually. I think the novice, non-police officer, non-person that works in this field. If the three, if we, if the three of us in this room right now, and we will bring Owen down too, and there's say someone is uh, 80 pounds and doesn't want to go to jail, mm-hmm. that's that can, it's a lot of, they can put up quite a fight. They sure can, absolutely. Yeah. And people uh, don't get that part. No, you know, um, it's easy to resist, to mm-hmm. kick, to bite, to flail, yep, to do all that stuff. Um, I like your self-review thing. I don't know, that's not the right word for it, but. Um, I think that's really good. You know, um, I remember I did some use of force untrained, a lot of it actually as a paramedic. Um, and then as a police officer, you know, after some better training on how to do stuff, I remember the, the first couple encounters, man, once you committed to that, it was a massive learning experience. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. I learned so much from direct experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I could have or should have and all that kind of stuff. So that's just part of it. But I, I like that self-reflection stuff. I know a lot of a lot of good cops think by, boy, that was dumb what I did right there. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily use of force, but just officer safety things. Mm-hmm. You know, just whatever. So you got to give cops credit for their intelligence yeah. and skill. Yeah. And uh, I'll just say, too, speaking of... Um, I, I was in uniform the other day because I'd gone to the range, and then I jumped in on a couple calls. And one of them was a guy with a knife. The second officer there. The first officer was ma- masterfully managing it, mm-hmm. just ha- talking over the hood of a car. You know, he had that uh, physical thing, of, you know, separating him. Mm-hmm. And just his skill. I mean, the guy was so good at it. And and the knife uh, eventually was, or a knife, the one visible one was uh, several feet away and some citizen kicked it away and all that. And then the two officers that arrived, relatively new cops, mm-hmm. um, whatever, they called the guy down and then they, the two, they went to the two-person handcuffing technique. Yes. I mean, it was, I knew what I was watching. Mm-hmm. And I was watching mastery mm. of these skills. A normal citizen would not recognize what was happening. Right. Matter of fact, they'd be like, wow, are those cops, cops slow? Yeah. Are those cops, are, you know, why don't they just do this? Why don't they do that? I was just watching excellent, excellent police work. Excellent. I like and it. And it was so undramatic. Yeah. And that's that's a win. It was that's so undramatic, win. you know. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, let's see here. Is there anything else that you thought maybe when you're coming over here that we might talk about that I didn't ask you about? Not that's come to mind yet. All right. So uh, anything you think of terry yeah so let me just um thank you tom for coming and can you promote and talk a little bit about um what's the name of your company storm training group yeah you've changed the term a little bit yep we, okay. yeah that, no i just wanted that's why i didn't come up with it right away I'm yeah not, i'm not dumb about it I'm, I'm on your website sometimes talk a little bit sure. about that and how people can find out more about it absolutely yeah so we did uh we added the training group portion to the name because it, it was a little more reflective of um, kind of the direction the training's going. We're not just providing um, training on use of force. We're also providing training on any topic that we have a, a valued and skilled instructor that's going to provide um, training for something that's needed in the police community for training. I think training is hands down the most important aspect of um, what we do. It's the, you know, it, of course, patrol in general is the backbone of police work, but to do what they do well, they need good training. And 
we're now bringing in other instructors in other um, areas. Like we have a, a search and seizure course coming up being taught by um, someone who's a police officer and a lawyer. We have a uh, command and control 101 for supervisors coming up by um, someone who's a senior commander. Um, the majority of what we do is use of force stuff at, at the moment, um, but we want to provide the best possible training for officers in all areas. In fact, we're looking at putting together a CIT course right now for um, probably December is what we're looking at. Um, so that's in the works. Um, however, the majority of what we've done is is the use of force training because, of course, that's that's my area of expertise. That's, you know, when I'm teaching something. And I'm not the only owner of Storm Training Group. Uh, Chad Mullenberg, who was on uh, the podcast as well um, a little while back, he's also um, he's the other owner of Storm Training Group. And we've got just a stellar cadre of um, instructors that, that work for us and, and teach with us, both for the use of force stuff um, and for these other, other courses that we've got coming up. Um, we teach the curriculum that we've been so successful with. We've seen just this incredible amount of success since we implemented this program. Just the, the officer injuries have decreased dramatically. The suspect injuries have decreased dramatically. The amount of strikes that are being used by police officers has decreased. Like I could throw the percentage out, but it's almost unbelievable. So usually I don't. I just say dramatically, um, because officers have these control techniques now that they're using these these team techniques, and just the the need to you know, punch somebody repeatedly when they start resisting is just not there. It's just not a. It's not that effective. B. It looks absolutely terrible. C. You, there's better ways to do it that result in less injury for both officers and suspects. It's it's a win-win-win for police officers, subjects, and the community, right? Um, STORM comes from uh, the essence of what we do and what we teach with, with our use of force stuff. It stands for Strategies and Tactics on Redirecting Movement. So that's you know, just the essence of jiu-jitsu. It's, where it's a control-based uh, martial art. You know, it's, it's, it's grappling. It's um, when somebody doesn't want to do something you're making their body do it anyway you're using timing and leverage um, working together as a team for many of our techniques to to make that happen uh, we've we started the company in 2015 i believe we didn't teach our first course until 2017 and since then we've run numerous courses we have over 100 instructors in our curriculum uh, spread throughout more than 70 agencies across the midwest um, and we just get nothing but but positive feedback and you know i just have a crazy passion for bettering police officers and providing better training and i think more not now more than ever solid use of force training that actually works is is what's needed across the country um there are other people teaching brazilian jiu-jitsu based you know martial art um uh, police use of force programs across the country um, I don't know if any of them have really taken hold or taken root like like what we have. Um, you know, I, I just don't know because I I haven't seen. Um, there's there's a couple that are are bigger and are out there, but um, maybe not so much locally. I should say that. Um, I think the reason ours has been extra success, successful is because we are cops, you know, the, the, the instructors of it are cops versus some of the ones that are out there, the people teaching it, they're not cops. So they don't quite understand what we are talking about with the stress level that occurs when in a real fight, because you can't expect to use the same exact stuff that you go learn at a civilian Brazilian Jiu Jitsu gym. You can't expect to teach that same material to police officers. It's just not applicable. Many of the techniques just wouldn't make sense for police to do. Um, many of the techniques are taught from like the officer being on their back. Well, that's that's great. We got to know what to do to like improve our position. We teach all that, but we don't bother teaching, you know, some of the more sporty aspects of of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Um, we we also acknowledge that police officers don't get the amount of training that they should. Most Brazilian Jiu Jitsu competitors, I mean, they're training ten hours a week. You know, we're lucky as a profession, if police officers get 10 hours of training of hands-on stuff in a year. In fact, the vast majority don't even get that. But the one cool thing is uh, police officers get to use it in real situations and real, with real people. That is true. And that's good if... And for... Uh, <laughs> for uh, Well, no, in, in the sense that they get direct experience... You do get direct experience. With, with I'll just say, um, service mm -hmm. to... 
to the world. I mean, yeah. they're basically doing something for others. True. Protecting the weak and absolutely I mean, the vulnerable and and also too it if you I'll just bring this up I didn't think of it until now but on the cover of my book I got two fists mm-hmm. and that's on purpose because of my strong recognition that the ability the threat of and the use of force allows our society to function because how else do you make how not everyone's going to follow the rules mm-hmm. and um, it's not a dirty word you know and right. it's, and um, and especially to, be, to do it as so thoughtfully and intelligently and skillfully as you're advocating for. What what's the web? What's the best address or what would be best way to find out more about either you or Storm? Sure. Yeah. My full bio, Chad Malmberg's full bio, all of our instructors' bios are all on our website. Our website is www.stormtraininggroup.com. Yeah. All right, Tom. Thank you so much. Really interesting. Uh, very helpful. Absolutely. Thanks um, for having me on. Glad to have you. Uh, And everybody, thanks for listening. Get back to work.